I want to turn to the Alabama Supreme Court ruling on in vitro fertilization uh, and embryos. Uh, you have said uh, that you believe an embryo is a baby, is a life, uh, but you also said the decision about what to do with embryos, that should be between a doctor and a patient. So I guess my question is, you then disagree with the Alabama Supreme Court, right? Yeah, I, but I think that the court was doing it based on the law, and I think Alabama needs to go back and look at the law. This is incredibly personal to me because I had both of my children with fertility, and what we want to make sure is two things. One, you want to make sure that embryos are protected and respected in the way that they're supposed to be. Two, you want to make sure that parents have the rights to make those decisions with their doctor as they go through in what they're gonna do. And we wanna make sure whatever we do, that we have plenty of opportunities and availability for, for fertility treatments to go forward. We don't want fertility treatments to shut down. We don't want them to stop doing IVF treatments. We don't want them to stop doing artificial insemination. We wanna make sure that people are able to have these blessings. But I think this is, again, needs to be decided on the people in every state. But what, what states need to remember is don't take away the rights of these physicians and these parents to have this conversation. It is too sensitive and too personal to not have that happen. Well, you, you seem to suggest there that they made the decision based on the law, but in the Alabama ruling, the judge, the chief justice, wrote in his opinion, quote, human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God. I mean, that was what Chief Justice Tom Parker uh, had to say. That seems to be his personal religious view, not the law as I understand it. Yeah, I had not heard that. I mean, it certainly does. And I think what we need to do is, look, if Alabama, what they need to do is look back at, at whatever it was this was. It's my understanding it was a civil case. But look back at that and say, how is this going to impact, you know, other women in the state of Alabama? How is it going to impact parents? How is it going to impact physicians who are helping these parents have their baby? And we need to make sure that we're not closing any doors. We need to make sure that embryos are protected. I personally believe an embryo is a baby. Not everybody's going to agree that an embryo is a baby, but that's why parents need to be able to have the decision on how they're going to handle those embryos. And they need to know that they're going to be protected, that they're not just going to be discarded by accident or that someone is not not properly taking care of them. When do you define when a fertilized egg becomes a baby? And the reason I ask is because there are some uh, Republican lawmakers out there who, who want to outlaw some forms of contraception because, as you know, some forms of contraception work by either inhibiting or blocking a fertilized egg from implanting in a uterine wall because they think the fertilized egg is a life, is a baby. They say that should be outlawed. Do you think a fertilized egg is a life, is a baby? I've always said I think contraception should be accessible. Very important. That's, again, it goes to the fact that people need to be able to have as much freedom to make decisions as they possibly can. This is where it goes back to the role of government, Jake. Government was intended to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. And when you have situations like this, what I don't want to see happen is everybody look at Alabama and every state think that they've got to go and put some sort of laws or regulations on these processes that parents go through. You don't have to do that. 
All you have to do is make sure that parents are protected and make sure that there is a scenario where these embryos are protected. The rest is between the parents and the doctor, and we need to keep it that way. Today, The Economist magazine has an article out entitled, Is Europe Ready to Defend Itself? The article says even as the Russian threat is growing, Western deterrence is weakening. That is partly because of wavering American support for, for Ukraine. But it is also because Donald Trump, who may very well be the next American president, has cast doubt on whether he would rally to Europe's side following a Russian attack. The Republican Party and parts of the security establishment are becoming less committed to Europe, unquote. Uh, you were Donald Trump's uh, ambassador to the United Nations. What's your response to this? If you were president, would you rally to Europe's side if there were a Russian attack? Absolutely. I mean, what we have to remember is we need to keep NATO strong. It's a 75-year success story. But you look at what Donald Trump said when he went off the teleprompter, which is, this, it's the whole problem and the chaos that starts this, is he said that he would side with Putin over our allies who stood with us at 9-11. You're going to side with a thug who kills his political opponents. You're going to side with a dictator who arrests American journalists and holds them hostage. You're going to side with a guy who's made no bones about the fact that he wants to destroy America. And our allies were there the second 9-11 happened. That's what that alliance is. And by him going and saying that he would actually encourage Putin to invade our allies, he just made every ally vulnerable and he just put every military member who's serving in those countries at risk. It was irresponsible. It's once again the chaos that he brought, that he brings to a situation, and it's dangerous. We need to let our allies know we will be there for them, just like they were there for us after 9-11. You've said that no matter what happens Saturday at the South Carolina primary, you're staying in the race. I wonder how much is your continuing to run for president, no matter what happens Saturday, how much is it about the chance that Donald Trump could possibly be a convicted felon later this year, and you want to be a, a plan B, as it were, for the Republican Party. What I'm trying to tell all Republicans and anybody, independents as well, anybody that's voting in those primaries is, if you want a change in our country, which I think the entire country wants a change, we won't get a change if we don't win an election. Donald Trump will not win the general election. You can, you can have him win any primary you want. He will not win a general election. We will have a female president of the United States. It will either be me or it will be Kamala Harris. But if Donald Trump is the nominee, you can mark my words, he will not win a general election. And what I say to everybody is don't complain about what happens in a general election if you don't really think about that in this primary. It, we can do better. You look at, I mean, these are the two most disliked politicians in America. Look at the polls. Look at what they're saying. 60% of Americans are saying Donald Trump's too old and Joe Biden's too old to be president. You look at the military. They capped retirement at 65. You look at pilots. They capped retirement at 65. We've got a lot to fix in this country. We need someone who can work eight years straight of hard work, day and night, fully disciplined, with no drama, no vendettas, just results for the American people. That's what's at stake here. And I'm going to continue to stay in and tell people this as long as I possibly can. So the trials have, have nothing to do with your decision. And I, I would also note that I believe early on in the primary process, you raised your hand and said you would support the nominee, even if he were a convicted felon. 
Well, I don't think the American people would support a convicted felon, but I will tell you, I have a lot of issues with Donald Trump. I have said that. I have no bones about speaking that. I have even more issues with Joe Biden. The key is we don't need either one of them. I think the court cases absolutely hurt Donald Trump. Right now, it may be giving him a shot in the arm, but he has said himself he's going to spend more time in a courtroom than the campaign trail. All of March, all of April, all of May, all of June, when you have that scenario, the chances of anyone winning that Republican nomination, if he is the person, are slim. They are just going to keep going down. Half a billion dollars in judgments he's got so far. He's now got to figure out where that money's going to come from. 50 million of campaign contributions from his own um, campaign have gone towards personal court cases. Now they're trying to get the RNC on board and trying to get me out so that they can continue to help him pay for judgments in court cases. We can't win an election that way. It is literally impossible that we will win an election if Donald Trump is the nominee. So I'm going to keep pushing through. We have a, a country to save, and I'm going to continue to show people that if I can beat Joe Biden by 18 points, guess what? That's a mandate to stop the wasteful mm -hmm. spending, get our country back on track. That's a mandate to get our kids reading again. That's a mandate to secure our borders. That's mm -hmm. a mandate for law and order in our cities. And that's a mandate for a strong America that we can all be proud of. All right, Governor Nikki Haley, have fun out there on the campaign trail. Thanks for talking to us today. Thanks so much. Go to NikkiHaley.com.